This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, a transfusion medicine pathologist and assistant professor of laboratory medicine and pathology at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Robert Fazio, Assistant Professor of Radiology and Division Chair of Breast Imaging at Mayo Clinic here in Rochester, Minnesota. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Fazio. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Kreuter. This is, uh, this is fantastic. I've never been part of one of these before, and so I'm looking forward to it. We're grateful for your time. This topic came up because I remember fondly when I was in training, and learning about doing some breast needle diagnosis and such, like just remembering how important the conversation was with our radiologists. And so maybe if we could kick things off, I'm kind of curious from your perspective as a radiologist and really a division chair of breast imaging, why is it important, do you think, for pathologists to understand a few fundamentals of breast imaging? Well, sure. No, I think that's a great question, really kind of an open-ended question to get started. And I'd be interested in your thoughts as well after we talk through this a little bit. I think that pathologists really who understand the basics of our imaging really might be able to arrive at their diagnoses faster and with more confidence, you know, particularly if the cases are challenging. I think that both clinical and imaging information really about certain cases can be useful to narrow a differential diagnosis or even provide a more confident diagnosis. You know, you and I are really both in the fields of turning shades of gray into black and white answers for our clinical colleagues. And I think imaging knowledge really can help you make those diagnoses and, and make that challenge happen. Ultimately, pathologist understanding of imaging fundamentals can aid in kind of the confidence of reporting and also aid in concordance reporting, which is essential for treatment planning, particularly in cancer cases. Wow. You know, that really resonates with me. I think about what's the adage, the pot calling the kettle black. Sometimes pathologists, we put great information in our comments and sometimes our colleagues don't exactly read our comments, just look at what we call the above the line diagnosis. And we're sort of like, oh, didn't you read our report? And I imagine the same thing is true in radiology. And so it's probably, yeah, that impetus for having a little bit of fundamental knowledge probably goes a long way. Or sometimes we talk about when is it important to pick up the phone and call? Absolutely. I really actually enjoy reading the comments. I know that when I see an extra comment below the official diagnosis, I know that's a case that maybe isn't as straightforward. And you guys are thinking about thinking out of the box and doing some different things to make sure that your diagnosis is correct. You know, if I might ask, where along in your training and development did you kind of come to that kind of realization of the comments and the role that it's playing in the PATH report? Sure. I, I suspect probably in my fellowship is when that sort of hit me a little bit. I think in residency, you're just trying to get through the rotations and do your best to to pass the courses and pass your exams. And in fellowship, you know, you really start becoming part of the team, I think and you contribute and you provide those contributions. And so, you know, that's where I kind of learned that some of these comments might be even more important than the actual above comment diagnosis. Wow, I think that's so important thinking about our audience, physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. This kind of goes to what you're saying, this kind of interprofessionalism, understanding what others on the team 
are doing and how they're contributing. Maybe we can dive into that a little bit. What are a few aspects of breast imaging that pathologists would be, it'd be really helpful for them to appreciate? I think there are a few things that are useful. I think it can be helpful for pathologists to understand sort of the imaging impression of what we sample. And as this, I think, can help narrow the differential in challenging cases. I think it's useful for you guys to know if we're sampling, say, a mass lesion or calcifications or architectural distortion or whatnot, you know, because each of these things have rather unique imaging features and it can steer you down the right pathway when, when you're having challenges as well. I think it's useful for you guys to know our level of suspicion and also which modality we're using for our imaging guidance. And then finally, I think it's useful for you to know how we performed the biopsy. You know, did we use a spring-loaded device? Did we use a vacuum-assisted device? Or did we perform an FNA? For example, let's say I see suspicious calcifications on a mammogram, and we go on to biopsy those calcifications with vacuum assistance and get good samples, send calcifications. And in our impression, you know, we say high suspicion, calcifications, suspect DCIS. And you see DCIS, I mean, that's a slam dunk, right? That's easy. Probably don't need a comment. Absolutely, where those things all align. So I guess in the impression, that's going to be in the report, right? Like you're saying, mass, calcs, architecture. And you said also that level of suspicion. How should we interpret or receive that level of suspicion? Like, is it is that kind of a, a binary or should we really try to see that as a shade of gray? I'm kind of thinking about in our world of cytology, there is specific words that are used in this shade of gray and how should we kind of interpret that? Usually when I send a clinical impression, I'll indicate high, intermediate, or low mm. suspicion, and then whatever it is that I'm sampling. And so I try to make it a little bit black and white. I don't give high or low. I just high, intermediate, or low. If I'm pretty confident this is going to be DCIS, for example, and I say high suspicion calcifications, you report back fibrocystic changes, then you and I need to have a phone conversation probably. Mm-hmm. And so I try to make it a little bit black and white for you guys as well. Oh, that's helpful. And you mentioned that modality for what type of imaging is used and how that might be helpful for the pathologist to understand. Can you kind of elaborate on what you mean by that? Because as an outsider, I'm not sure if I'm really picking up what you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So You know, the common modalities that we use are mammograms, ultrasound, and MRI. Those are probably the top three. And so if we're biopsying something with mammogram guidance, and so that would be something like a stereotactic breast biopsy or a tomosynthesis guided breast biopsy, we're usually aiming at something that could be DCIS or not. Could it be invasive or microinvasive? Absolutely. But when we're doing a stereotactic biopsy, we're thinking about DCIS the most. Whereas if we're using ultrasound or MRI guidance, we're probably targeting a mass. And so that could be invasive malignancy or any of the benign masses that can be diagnosed in the breast. That's sort of what I mean by useful to know kind of the modality. Ah, no, that's very helpful. For more laboratory education, including a listing of conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit mayoclinicalabs.com forward slash education.
we've been kind of uh, playing around with this idea of interprofessional collaboration. Like you said, in certain situations, you know, we need to have a phone call and, and talk things out. Knowing that the, the audience here, we have a lot of pathologists and lab medicine folks that are listening to this and, and students along the pathway of hopefully playing this team sport of medicine. You know, what are your thoughts on how pathologists could better collaborate with radiologists? And I really ask this question because sometimes it's hard to know, how do I get started collaborating with an outside group? And so, you know, your insights here are really appreciated. Oh, absolutely. You know, first and foremost, I really do think our collaboration efforts are fantastic and particularly in the clinical arena. We really are the only subspecialty that works with the breast pathologists that perform concordance reporting on our biopsy samples. I don't think anybody else does that. And so I think that our collaboration between our groups really, really facilitates this, uh, the ability to do that. Otherwise, you know, as you mentioned on the clinical side, I think phone conversations are always helpful. If you guys are con confused about the material that we send, certainly happy to take a conversation or if we can provide any additional information about what you might be seeing in a challenging case, happy, happy to discuss it at any time. You know, in addition, we're starting our radiology pathology concordance conference back up. This is a conference that we run each week. Our fellows run it. And we like to get as many people there as possible from the multidisciplinary team, but particularly radiologists and pathologists so to sort of discuss some of the more challenging cases that we biopsied maybe the week previous. COVID really hit that conference hard. It just sort of went away for about three years, but our current fellows are really excited to start it back up and we're, we're starting to do those conferences again. I still remember you know, some very, very eager pathology fellows that came to those conferences. They, they even bring PowerPoints with slides about the biopsy findings. And it was really, really useful. That was maybe four or five years ago. That conference was really beneficial to our trainees and I think to your trainees as well. And we'd love for you guys to come to those conferences again. And I'm happy to try to facilitate that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Great for our audience to hear, right? Because we have a lot of audience outside of Mayo, and they might be thinking about how does this kind of play out in their own area. Some may have these conferences that are going, or some might have some like ours, where COVID gave us a little bit of a, a pause and a skip. Because we have our student listeners, I'd be curious to just hear your thoughts on for these kind of interprofessional conferences, right? That's where, it, like, I think you're highlighting some important learning is happening for how your radiology trainees are interacting with pathology trainees, pathology consultants. Are there any thoughts you've had over the years for either how do you prepare people for going into these environments or are there kind of some common feedbacks that you've given to trainees over the years to learn the most from these sorts of uh, collaborations? I think there's a lot of good on-the-fly discussion at these meetings that can be beneficial to teach the interdisciplinary team about the other's fields. You know, ideally, we would have breast pathology uh, fellows rotate with us to visit our procedural practice as well. I'm not sure if that's happening right now. I think it has happened in the past. We do send our fellows to you, mm -hmm. and they're very, very complimentary of those weeks just to see what they've biopsied under the microscope and, and how that compares to all of the other breast pathologies out there. So, mm -hmm. 
rotating, I think, in the other subspecialty is really helpful. Yeah, I think that's been wonderful as I've, you know, talking with our trainees over the years, this idea that they understand kind of the workflow with the other groups so they can understand where sometimes various pressures come up and certainly goes a long way. If, if you and I have met in real life and shared a laugh or whatnot, like it, it makes it easier to pick up the phone and have those critical conversations. Yeah, I also think it's really, really useful. I mean, if there's an interesting case that, that they can, you know, write up very quickly. I mean, case reports can happen pretty fast. And if you have a, a collaborative team on that between two fellows or two residents, I think those are fantastic opportunities. Absolutely. And grateful that you're highlighting how what might be originally perceived as maybe a clinical practice arena thing, a clinical domain, how it's filling roles in both education as well as the research shield. I think that's a true statement. Can I maybe close with just kind of asking you, how might breast imaging change in the coming years? I think a lot of our audience don't have your vantage point and perspectives and, and curious what you see in the coming years for breast imaging. I think it's an exciting time, to be honest. I think that there could be some changes in how screening is performed. You know, right now, everybody gets an annual mammogram starting at age 40 and going into their 80s and 90s. And every year they have to attend that mammogram. And, you know, we detect a lot of tiny cancers on those mammograms now. In the future, and people are working on this right now, but I think that there may be opportunities for blood tests as initial screening tools. Patients would get their annual blood test. Those that are negative would be done for the rest of the year until their next annual test. Those that are positive would end up coming to us to get diagnostic imaging rather than a screening mammogram. The other thing I think could be exciting is that there are a lot of developments in MRI right now, and abbreviated MRI might be the future of screening as well. It's much more sensitive and specific than mammography is. The trouble with MRI really is that the machines cost a lot, you know, that the exams take a long time to perform. Patients need to have an IV placed with contrast. And so if we can get by some of those things and make the examination shorter to perform, I think that's, I think it has potential for sure. I think AI will be a factor in helping us provide diagnoses in the future. We're still working to try to figure out the best way to incorporate AI into our practice. You're probably doing the same thing. I really hope that imaging specificity will improve, which would decrease really the need for biopsies in many cases. I've thought that this would happen for years, and so far it hasn't happened. We do as many biopsies now as we have 10 years ago when I started on staff. A couple other things. I think image-guided percutaneous therapies like cryoablation has potential to reduce open surgical treatment. I think that has a, a future. Having said all that, I do think that image-guided biopsies are not going away anytime soon. And so you and I will have many years of collaboration ahead of us, I think. I'm really looking forward to that. And I really appreciate, it's really quite an extensive list you're sharing with our listeners, which I'm sure for that there's at least something that's kind of planted in every listener's mind in that list that you mentioned. We've been rounding with Dr. Fazio talking about fundamentals of breast imaging and what pathologists need to know. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Fazio. Absolutely. Dr. Porter, thanks so much for the invitation. 
And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email to mcleducation at mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through educational conversations. Thank you.